And it's a temptation for us to try and just act differently without transformation. When you come to Christ, it's not just like, okay, now I have to act a different way because I'm a Christian now. Yes, but that comes by a transformed mind. Not by you just going, okay, now I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I gotta do Christian things. So I listen to Christian music, I only eat Christian uh, cookies, I only drink Christian coffee, I only, you know, get Christian shoes. If they don't have crosses on it, I ain't wearing it. You know, like this whole mindset of like, now I just gotta change my behavior. We must go through a transformation within our own mind. It's necessary. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. John chapter 17. It begins with Jesus speaking. It says in verse 1, Jesus spoke these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. Let's pray. Lord, we pray tonight as we uh, read through what your son prayed. Um, God, we, we ask that you would speak to us in the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, God, that you love us, that you care for us, uh, and that you pray for us. The Bible says that you ever live to intercede for us. And uh, how that works, I'm, I'm uh, just in awe of, of how that works. But... Um, God, we are so thankful that you care enough about us to offer up prayers for us. And so, Lord, we, we pray tonight as we spend time in your word, as we look at this, that you'd speak to us. you draw us close in Jesus' name. Amen. So, John chapter 17, this is a pretty amazing portion of scripture. It's a glimpse into a divine or into the divine community that is God. Um, we have before us inner Trinitarian communication. And what that really big word means is that God is talking to himself. So God in, within the Godhead, Jesus is speaking to God the Father, yet three different parts, but yet one, are all communicating within each other. You see, see it sometimes in the book of Psalms as well as throughout scripture, but this is one of those instances where Jesus is praying. And when Jesus prays, it's really um, one of those things you want to pay attention to. But you, want, you don't want to deconstruct this too much to the point where you can't put it back together. Does that make sense? It is what it is, and it's, it's something that's holy, and it's something that's um, divine. And so it's something that we come to with that kind of like reverence and respect. And that's why I wanted Zach to teach this week, but he couldn't. And so here we are. I was trying to pass this one off. Like, you want to teach Jesus prayer? That'd be cool. But um. Here we are, and I get to do it. So it's pretty amazing to, to see what's happening. Um, but what Jesus prays, I think, is also just as amazing. In verses 1 through 5, he prays for himself, but in doing so, he prays for us. Um, in, chap- in verses 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples. And in verses 20 through 26, he prays for all believers. And so um, there's actually five requests that Jesus makes within these, within these verses and so hopefully we'll, we'll see them come to the forefront. But we have seen Jesus many times getting away to pray. Throughout the Gospel of John, he goes away to pray to seek the Father. He is shown to pray alone. He prays in public. He prays before meals, before important decisions, before healings, after healings. He prays to do the Father's will among other things. But he also taught 
on the importance of prayer in Matthew chapter 5, in Luke chapter 6, in Matthew chapter 6, including the Lord's Prayer in Luke chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 18. And so we see a lot of times Jesus is either praying alone or he's teaching us how to pray or instructing us in prayer. And Jesus found time. And it's, it's one of those things where if Je Jesus is God, yet he found it important and vital to his life on earth to spend time in the presence of God, in the, in the presence of the Father, we also, it should speak to us in our finite minds and limit, limited power and limited ability, the necessity that it is to spend time sitting at the feet of God. Just sitting with him. Jesus found time to turn down the noise of life and ministry to teach us what is most needed, and that is time in the presence of God. Remember Mary and Martha, there was an instance where Martha is working super hard in the kitchen, and she's trying to prepare these meals, and, and her sister is out there sitting at the feet of Jesus doing nothing, and she tries to rebuke her sister through Jesus. She's like, Jesus, you rebuke her. That would be even better. Uh, if you could just like smack her around and tell her to get to work, like, do something. And what does Jesus say? She has chosen the better thing. And that is to sit at my feet. Like the service and all that stuff. Yeah, that's fantastic. But unless this takes place, which is the better thing, the presence of God, the person of God, uh, the power of God there in their midst, that was the better thing. And so if Jesus found it important for us or important for himself, we also should find it fascinating that Jesus cultivated a life of prayer. Like that's one thing that he devoted himself to. It's one thing that he never missed, never like, you know, like I'm okay, I'm, I'm God, I can do this. He found time to pray, always. Um, and I, I think in my own life, and I'm, if you're honest and I'm honest, I'll be honest, the last thing that I do a lot of times is pray. I will scheme I will, um, you know, try and figure it out. I will, you know, you know, try and give people advice. And I'm like, I'll get to this point where I'm like, man, it's a pretty helpless situation. Well, I guess we'll just pray about it. You know, that's kind of like my default. Like, oh, we, can, we can't do anything. Well, I guess we'll just pray. And a lot of times prayer feels like you're tossing up words to nothing. And you're like, this sounds so stupid. Anyone else? All right, don't look at me all judgy and von holier than thou. Here, it's true. Like, we pray, and you're sitting there, like, if you're praying by yourself, and you're like, who am I talking to? Am I talking to myself? Jesus talked to himself. If he's God, he's praying to who? <laughs> so take comfort. Prayer is not you talking to yourself. You're talking to the almighty God. You have access unto to his throne and his presence because of what Jesus does here in these chapters. And so prayer is something that's vital to our life, although it's, it feels like it's not doing anything. It truly is where we receive the power of God. It's where we receive rest in his presence. And it's so hard because life is noisy. It's super noisy. Everything around us is so, there's always background music. There's always white noise. And it's almost like we, we fear silence. Is everyone, you're in a house and you're like, it's too quiet. It's too quiet in this place. It's, it, there's not enough. I need something going. That every time my wife is gone with the kids and I'm home by myself and I'm like, it's too quiet. It's too quiet. I don't know what to do with myself. And so, of course, 
Metallica goes on. I'm like, yeah, through Alexa. No, we're, but, but you know, it's like, we need something on. I need the TV on. I need something on. All of this is because, and I'll just speak for myself. There is a real fear with having to sit with myself and God. Like there's a real like anxiety because through the noise of it all, I can kind of passively push the stuff that I need to deal with, with God aside and just be like, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. Like I just, it's just too noisy. I'm too distracted. And distraction is, is honestly like, it's one of the greatest tools of the devil is distraction. And uh, not that you have to throw away your PlayStation or, or your Xbox or whatever, or like, you know, you can. But, it, but distraction is something that like, a lot of times, um, I would say we minimize the value of solitude with God. Like we minimize that as like, I could be spending my time doing so many better things. Jesus says, this is the better thing. Like this is the best thing. And it's provided to us by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus says, the hour has come. In verse one, the hour had come. Jesus was living on a specific or for a specific moment. Um, if you remember in his first miracle, when his mother came to him and was like, we've run out of wine, which was the equivalent of running out of joy. Like we've run out of joy at this party, like at this wedding, like we need more joy. And so um, what does he say to her? My hour has not yet come. And so many times we, th throughout this study, we've heard him say, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And now he says, the hour has come. This is it. And with that, there's this resolute, like no turning back, the cross is before me, nothing else behind me. I am heading towards that direction. And he prays with this absolute um, kind of tone to his voice. Like this is happening. Glorify your son as I will glorify you through my death, through my resurrection, through the way of salvation being provided. This is where I'm going and nothing will stop me. There's this real, like, this is it. The hour has come, no turning back. He says, glorify your son that your son may also glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life. Hold on, okay? Jesus is about to define eternal life. So you might want to pay attention or underline it, maybe come back to it when you're more awake and into it. But, but Jesus is about to tell us what eternal life is. You can hear from anywhere, anywhere else, like, this is what eternal life is. Jesus right here is about to say what eternal life is. And he says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you and the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Whoa. Hold on a second. Did you notice that it's not talking about a defined length of time? This is a parenthetical thought. Like this kind of pauses as he talks about it. And suddenly there's this thought within parentheses where he says, and this is eternal life. And it's within this, he's going to answer that, that term he just threw out. Here's what it is. It's not defined by a length of time, but by a personal knowledge of God. Not just length of time, but relationship with God. Yes, chronologically, eternal life is eternal. But to experience eternal life now in our knowledge and relationship with him is eternal life. We read a few weeks ago that Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. And through him comes life 
What is that life? It's eternal life. Although the outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. There is eternal life bubbling up within us because although we're breaking down, although I have a weird cramp in my hamstring and I have done nothing for weeks, no exercise, nothing. And I just all of a sudden feel like I pulled my hamstring, like I sneezed weird, like the tent is breaking down, Corinthians says, like we are falling apart. It's, it's science, it's fact. The body breaks down no matter what you inject into it, no matter what, you know, how much joint juice you take. It is falling apart. It will eventually fall apart. This body will perish. But the inward man, the one that is saved by faith in Christ, my soul is renewed day by day as eternity draws closer and closer and closer. And what he's telling us is eternal life is not just in a length of time. At some point we die and we enter into it, yes, but it is also through relationship and knowing God now. Now. It's really an interesting concept. And the more I walk with the Lord and like the more I read my Bible, the more I'm like, I have no idea. Anyone else? I'm just going to, don't lose faith in me. I study and I like read stuff. And so you can have confidence that I do really know what I'm talking about. But the more I read it, the more I'm like, uh, I really don't know. I want to, <laughs> you know, where like the depths of your relationship with God have gone from, from just like singing the little songs in preschool and, you know, knowing who Jesus is to this point of realizing that God is so much bigger than what I actually thought like two years ago. Such is the Christian life. It's like this unfolding and unboxing again of, of the glory of God. And like, wow, I, I don't know how this is going to work. But this is something that's one of the little facets and prisms of God's glory that you're like, wow. Eternal life is not just a length of time. It's found in a person, in a personal relationship with him for all of eternity. In verse 5, he says, I have or verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given to me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He asked that the glory that he had previously to, or previous to the reincarnation, or it, no, excuse me, before incarnation, before he wrapped himself in flesh, would be given to him again. The Bible tells us that he took off glory. He put it aside, put on flesh, not reincarnation, excuse me. That's the wrong term. Incarnation, where he put himself in carne, carne asada. He put himself in meat, flesh, like he's inside of it, God inside of it. And he says, restore to me that which was where I was at one point. Revelation 5 is this great picture where the church will see for themselves for the first, one of the first times, the glory of the Lamb coming into the presence of God. And they're all standing there, thousands upon thousands upon thousands, singing and worshiping. The, the song in that, in Revelation chapter 5, read it. It's a beautiful song that the church sings of the redemptive power of God. And there we are witnessing the previous glory in which Jesus had before the incarnation. And Jesus says, restore that to me. Um, in verse 6, he says, I have manifest your name to the men whom you have given to me out of the world that were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known all things which you have given to me are from you. For I have given them the words which you have given me, 
and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you and they have believed that you sent me. It's a lot of stuff. But what he says in that first line is he manifested. And that word means to reveal or unveil. He manifested to them the name of God, referring to who he is. When someone talks about the name, like if someone were to say, do you know such and such? Do you know who this person is? Like, do you know who Andrew Newman is? And you would say, oh yeah, he's the big guy. And this is how he's the big guy with red hair. That's normally how it goes or where you're described. So if someone would say, hey, do you know Zach Ruiz? Oh yeah, he's the Hispanic guy who plays guitar, you know, or whatever. <laughs> Not just that we're defined by race and color. Obviously that's a horrible way to describe it. But, but when someone talks about your name, like who, who is this person? What's encompassed or what's being asked is who is this person and, and define them in, in this way, like how would you describe them in, in all that they are? When we talk about the name of God, it's attributing to him all that he is. So he says, I've unveiled to them or manifested to them your name, the character, the peace, the, the, the person of God, that you are spirit. Uh, all of these things have been unveiled to them. The name of God referring to who he is. Who God the Father is revealed to us as the shepherd, as father, as vine dresser. All these ways that Jesus is giving them glimpses into the character and the nature of who God the Father is. And the way that he loves us, and the way that he takes care of us, and the way that he disciplines us. In all these different ways, he says, this is who God is. And he says, I've held nothing back. I've revealed him to you by his name and by his word. Jesus was the embodiment of the nature and the heart of God. He, he said to Philip, if you want to know what God looks like, you've seen him in me. Him, he and I are the same. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Philip, finally it clicks for him like, oh my goodness. Jesus just claimed to be God. Whoa. That's a big deal. Philip says it would suffice if we could just see the Father. Like then we'd all be good. Right, anyone? Let's just cut to the chase here. It's enough of these stories, parables that we don't understand. Just show us God, and that'll be enough. <laughs> I like Philip. Very like to the point. Meat and potatoes. Let's get this done here. Just show us what we need to see so we can move on. <laughs> Jesus says, Philip, if you have seen me, you've seen God. That God, or God speaks and Jesus comes out as the word, the logos of God. That he's the very word of God. He is the embodiment of the nature and heart of God the Father. They believed in his name. They believed in his word. In Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? He asked them that question. Who's, who are people saying that I am? Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Moses. Some say you're this. Some say you're that. And then he directs it to them and says, who do you say that I am? And they said, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus told Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. My spirit has revealed it to you. It was this unveiling of the nature of God. And they believed in his name. They believed in his word. And so Jesus begins to pray. As he prays for his disciples, um, in verse 9, he says, I pray them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. It's such a wonderful verse. Jesus is glorified in us. Now, <laughs> this room is so echoey that anything, you can hear anything. It's so crazy. Sorry. 
No, now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. Now, this is the request that Jesus makes. When he's talking about his disciples, he says, keep them united. Keep them. Number one, keep them, Lord. Like, preserve them. Strengthen them. You remember when, when Peter was talking to Jesus, he says, I'll never deny you. And, and Jesus says to him, Peter, the devil has asked for you by name that he may sift you like wheat. You know what it means to sift something? You remember in the, the package of beach toys as a kid that you would get, and there was that useless screen thing? in that pack of like shovels and, and buckets. And you're like, what is this screen? This is a horrible Frisbee. You know, it's like a, it, this is a dumb piece. That's a sifter. It was to like dig it, you know, and you would do this back and forth. And then there would be rocks and shells and magical things and syringes at Doheny that you would find. And you're like, yeah, cool. Right? You'd find all these things in the sand. True story. But, but you know, <laughs> especially when it rains, like stay out of the water. But it's a sifter. You would shake it back and forth, and everything that was solid at the top would stay, and all that, that other stuff would fall through. The devil says, Peter, or, or Jesus, could I have Peter just for a minute? I would like to sift him as wheat, meaning I'd like to press on him through this tightly fine screen process, and I would push him through this and ring him through this system that what's left at the top is that little kernel of faith that I could snatch it up. I want to take him and I just want to destroy him. Would you give me permission to do that? And what I meant, Jesus like, yeah, go for it. No problem. No, he says like, take heart. I have prayed for you. Keep them united, Jesus said. This was a labor for them. To keep them united. The devil asking to mess with them and to, to have permission to go in and to lie and do all these things. Listen, division has been the work of the devil since the beginning of the church. And this, this prayer that Jesus says, keep them one. Number one, preserve them. Keep them from the evil one, right? But also that they would stay together, united with one mind, one purpose, one goal. And that is the mission of Jesus Christ into a non-believing, Christ-rejecting world. Keep them with that in mind. Because God, Jesus knows the heart of men. And that is the heart to rule, right? I want O'Doyle rules. We want to rule over each other. We want to have authority, position. We want to have this place of like ruling over someone. At some point, there's this desire to rise up and to have others underneath you. That you then become the puppet master and you control things. God knows that that is at the heart of men. And so prayer and the way that he encourages us to do so is to remove us from the throne of our own heart as king and ruler over all things and to place him there and realize that we're all serving under one king, Jesus Christ. And, and just leveling the playing field, Jesus says, keep them united. Of all the things that Jesus could have prayed for his disciples, like think of all the things that Jesus could have prayed and could have been recorded in the word for, of, for us. He tells us that he prays for their unity. One mind, one mission, one passion, and that would be Jesus Christ. 
Keep them united in that place. And that, that prayer continues into the prayer for all believers. In verse, as you move through the continuing on, um, it says, keep them through your name, who's given me, who are, that they may be one as we are. Okay, notice that there's this, this unity, and he says that that needs to take place, a unity that is represented in the Godhead, in, in the triune um, person that is God. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that a scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy, my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not pray that you should take them out of this world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Jesus' prayer for them is not that they would be removed from hardship, but that God's strength and provision would come in the midst of hardship. These men, every single one of them, would be martyred for their faith. John would be boiled in oil, but he would not boil, and so they, they banish him to the island of Patmos. Can you imagine? They're like, he's not boiling. What a sick way to try and kill someone, by the way. But like, he's, oh. And so just like sending him to some island, like to do away with him uh, over there. And, and even Peter would be crucified upside down. Others would be dragged through the streets by ropes, by the back of horses until they died. Others were beaten with clubs, um, eaten by wild animals. You name it. And they didn't die for a lie. They died for the truth. They died for the truth. He says, I do not pray that they'd be removed from that, but that they would stay within that pressure and in that tension that the name of God might be glorified, but that you should keep them from the evil one. It's in hardship, it's in that pressure, it's in that tension where the devil will come and he'll begin to whisper to us that if God really loved you, you wouldn't be going through this. God really cared about you or if you didn't do that thing, God's grace would really be on you. But because you failed, oh man, that's why this is happening. There's a lot of things that happen in our life and we're like, I don't know why it happens. That is the struggle of humanity. Like we just don't know why things happen sometimes. Stuff happens. It does. It's hard. It's difficult. It's the world we live in. But our job isn't to know why. It's to take that information and say, God, I believe that you are God and I'm not. And so I believe your word that says in everything you have a plan and a purpose and you're working all things together for my good. And so I trust that somewhere along the line, this is going to come back for your glory. Right now, doesn't look like it. It's looking pretty grim, pretty awful. But somewhere, I believe your word and your promise never fails. I believe that it will come true at some point. It will have some kind of redemptive value. Because Christ does not waste anything, does he? Do you ever see him wasting anything? There's no person that God says that's a waste. There's no life. There's no food. Like even the fish and the bread that were left over from the feeding of the 5,000, he gathers up the leftovers. And you think, why does the Holy Spirit leave that within his word? Why does he tell us that? It's to remind us that God doesn't waste anything. There's no, if he didn't waste fish and bread, which were disgusting by day two, Right? It's not something you like leftovers. There's certain things that are good leftovers, like, like meats. Those are worth saving. Salad goes in the trash. No one saves that for the next day, unless some of you do. But I'm not saving that. It's a vegetable. That's meh. 
we'll get another one. It's a waste of Tupperware space. But, but Jesus sees bread and fish. He gathers it all up and he says, I don't waste anything. If I don't waste this, I'm not going to waste your life. It's not a waste in your life. So there's no part in our life in which God wastes. But he says to them in verse 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Uh-oh. 3%. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctification is this process in which we go through of holiness and refinement. It means to be set apart as well, meaning that God grow them and mature them by your truth. Paul told us to take up the belt of truth. It's the first thing within the armor of God that we're supposed to place upon ourselves is to hold everything up with truth. But he says that, that we're taking on this life of Christ. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. When we come to Christ, our minds need to go through a necessary transformation. When you come to Christ, your mind has to go through this process of transformation. Where we used to see things in the world's view, in the world's way, now God begins to transform our minds by the renewing, the renewing of our mind through his word. We begin to see things the way that God sees things. We have a different economy, God's economy. We have a different kind of, of system, world system. That we're not living for this life, we're living for another. And so the mind goes through this necessary transformation. Romans 12 talks about it. Let us be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And it's a temptation for us to try and just act differently without transformation. When you come to Christ, it's not just like, okay, now I have to act a different way because I, I'm a Christian now. Yes, but that comes by a transformed mind. Not by you just going, okay, now I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I got to do Christian things. So I listen to Christian music, I only eat Christian co uh, cookies, I only drink Christian coffee, I only, you know, get Christian shoes. If they don't have crosses on it, I ain't wearing it. You know, like this whole mindset of like, now I just got to change my behavior. We must go through a transformation within our own mind. It's necessary. When we come to Christ, our minds need to go through this transformation. We come to Christ, our minds need to go through a process of, of transformation. Everything we know from the world is actually the wrong way. I was talking to a guy last week who's thinking about getting engaged. And he's like really excited about getting engaged. And his dad's not a believer. And he's like, how are you going to get engaged to this girl? You guys have never slept together. Like, how do you even know if, if this is the right thing? Like, you, you, gotta, you gotta try on the pants to see if it works. You know, he's trying to work with this system because that's the way the world thinks. That this is what you gotta do to see if it's even compatible and this is what you have to do in order to make this thing work. So the way that the world sees sex is actually totally wrong. It's a way of shaking hands. It's a way of satisfying a need. And God says it's actually deep intimacy with one person for the rest of your life that only gets better with time. That's God's view of sex and the way that he created it. It's going to get better the longer you're with that person. The world says it's only going to get worse and more boring as they get unattractive. What we don't understand is that God created us to fall in love with someone's soul before you ever fall in love with someone's body. And so that's what the world doesn't understand is that you fall in love with a soul, the body comes with it, and you continue to love that soul regardless of what the body looks like. 
There's an attraction that's deeper than just skin. It goes beyond into who the person is. And that is the way that God has made and created sex to be used. And the world says, nah, that's totally wrong. Anywhere, anyone, anytime. Love has no definition. Love has no gender. Love has no this, no that. It's whatever you want, whenever you want. God says, actually, if you will do it this way, it is so blessed. It is so wonderful. It is so good. It's fascinating. The way that the world sees money, the way that the world does everything, fear, love, laziness, any of these things, we need our minds to be transformed by the Lord when it comes to these things. This is a process, a lifelong process of sanctification, of being set apart under the things of God. Verse 21. I do not pray for those alone, but those who believe in me throughout their word. That they all may be one as you, Father, in me, and I in you, that you also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Whoa. Let's take the next three weeks, and we're just going to talk about this verse right here. Not really. Jesus prays for the future of the church. For those that would come from that day of Pentecost to the, to the present where we are sitting right now as a result of the day of Pentecost, the falling of the Holy Spirit, the empowering of the Holy Spirit, the preaching of the gospel to the known world, to every other revival that's come to where we presently are today. He prays for every single believer. And notice what he prays for. This is wonderful. Praise that God make them one. He doesn't pray. God revealed to them the whole doctrine of election and, and give them clarity on that whole drinking and drunkenness thing. Like that's not what Jesus prays. Lord, help them to, to see the truth of Arminianism and Calvinism. Like he doesn't say any of that stuff. He says, make them one. Make them one as you and I are one. He, he expresses his desire for them to be one and he uses the image of Jesus and the Father in that kind of closeness and oneness and, and, and complete and total keeping of the same will and the same mind. He prays for unity that would be example. It would be an example of the Godhead to the world. That the world were to look at the church and they would see the unity among it as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit live in perfect harmony and peace and community, that the church would mirror that very thing. It's crazy if you look up how many denominations there are. It's within the thousands. Thousands. And the thing about that is we, dist we have this thing where we're like, you're over there, I'm over here. We're doing it right. You could very possibly be doing it very wrong. And the reason God prays, Jesus prays for the unity of the church is so that we would all come under the same banner of Christ as Lord and King, all with the same mission, all with the same mind, and all with the same passion, and that is to reach the world with the gospel, not to steal other people's sheep. Like, not to be like, <laughs> you know? No. There's so many people in this world who are so lost, 
who need Jesus. And that is the mission and the purpose of the church. When we see people getting saved and going to the church right over here, this AG one, and they're like, man, I just want to know Jesus. We rejoice with them because we are one body, one mind, one purpose, one mission. And that is that people would know Christ. When we see people coming to Jesus and going to a church that maybe like it's smaller or whatever, and they have different kind of worship and they, you know, play, they don't have drums and it's very like liturgical. And we're like, oh man, we rejoice because they're going to church. And they're desiring to see God and see Jesus. It is our job to promote more and more unity among the body of Christ. That, hey, what you need is not just a, 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 like the right symbol or the right tag over your, your church. But you need Jesus Christ. And if that church ain't preaching it, go somewhere else. Go somewhere else. The mission and the goal of the church is to preach Christ. If a church isn't doing that, then that's not the mission of the church. The mind in the one mission that he says that they, they would be one is that we would live within this, this wonderful peace and harmony among not only other churches, but within ourselves. All promoting the Godhead, that it would flow so peacefully and easily as God does, and that we would love each other and promote each other and build one another up and encourage one another instead of backbiting and devouring, as Paul would say. He says, this is what Jesus prays. God, make them one, of one mind, of one mission, of one passion, that Jesus Christ is preached. Paul, when he was in jail, guys would come and preach in pretense, Paul said. Like they're preaching with this, this desire to like take people from, from Paul's ministry and stuff. And Paul's like, whatever, defame me. I don't care. You can say whatever you want about me. If people are getting saved, praise God. Praise God. If they're going to heaven, awesome. I'm stoked. What an amazing attitude. And that's what Jesus prays for us, man. If people are getting saved, praise God. Praise God stoked. People are, are becoming Christians and sharing the gospel with their, their unsaved family and friends. Praise God. Wonderful. Woo. It's a win for all of us. Like we all win. Like we all win. It's like being on a team. You ever been on a team, but you ride the bench the whole year. You know, the guys like that play in the NFL, the, even the backups when their, their team wins the Super Bowl. Even if they didn't play a down, their second, third string, they get a ring. They get a ring. 15 million bucks sitting there on their finger and their jersey is white as snow. Never sweat a drop during the game. Didn't do anything. And they're like, we won the Super Bowl. Yeah, did you? No, you didn't even really do anything. Tom Brady cheated and that's how you won. But, but still, <laughs> we're not going to get into it. But, but listen, they get a ring. The coaching staff, they get rings. The assistant coaching staff, they get rings. The whole organization partakes in the victory. They all win. Even if, even if they didn't sweat during that final game. You realize like, that we all win. If people are coming to Christ, we all win. It's all to the glory of God. It's not because of anything that we've done. It's because the Holy Spirit draws men unto himself. And so we give God glory and say, God, you did something miraculous. Praise God. You worked through men 
who are messed up and tweaked and unholy and unrighteous, and yet you, God, made them righteous, and you used them, and, and people are getting saved. All glory be to God. And that's what Jesus prays. Make them one. And look, last thing. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. Oh, my goodness. This, this, Jesus prays, this is my desire. Father, would you grant me that where I am, they would be with me. From the very beginning, when Jesus called his disciples, he said to them, he called them that they might be with him. You know what Jesus desires from you? Is that you would be with him. That you would spend time with him. That you would be where he is. That's why he went to the cross, is so that you wouldn't be separated from him for all of eternity. So that you would be with him in heaven, he says, where my father's house is, there are many mansions. Look what it says in John chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you will be also. Jesus' desire in his prayer, you see it, it's an unveiling of his heart. What he desires from us is not what you can do for him. It's not what you can do for him. He's not like, I want that kid on my team because he's really good. His desire is that you would be with him. Simple, plain, that's it. It's not what he wants from you or what he can get from you. It's that he simply wants you because he loves you. Insane. There's no other God that loves you like that. There's no other person that loves you like that. This is amazing. This is so counterculture or counter to the world that we live in. Um, look at verse 26, last thing. And I have declared to them your name, and I will declare it that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. The desire is that we would be with him and that we would love each other as God and the Son love each other. How that works, I have no idea but it does. So the Bible says it, it's in red. I believe it. God loves you. He loves me. I love him. May we grow in our love for him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. I thank you that my iPad died halfway through. We love you, Lord, so much that God, this portion of scripture, as we look into this and what you say, Lord, is so so wonderful for us to be reminded of. I know from, for myself that what you desire from me is not, not what you can get from me or get out of me, but simply that you desire just to be with us. And um, Lord, we're so thankful that you're a God of relationship, that you're a God who desires to, um, to be amongst his people. And, and tonight, Lord, as we sing to you, as we worship you in, in closing, Lord, we're so thankful that you're the God who longs to be with us. And so you're here among us tonight. And we ask that your, your presence would move among us and, and begin to um, reveal to us more of our heart. Lord, if there's any divisions within us, whether it's with people and friendships and people that we've um, just had issues with or... Lord, we know that the devil loves to divide, loves to cause friction, and loves to cause uh, uh, just these rifts between us. And Lord, we know that's not of you. 
You want unity within the body of Christ. You want unity within our heart in you. And so if there's anything that's come in the way or in between, and um, if there's people we need to go to and confess sin to and ask for forgiveness, Lord, we pray that you give us the humility to do it, the strength and the power to do it. And uh, Lord, we're just so thankful that, that this is recorded for us, your love for, for us and um, your love for the lost. And so... We worship you tonight. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hard in the sun.